Good morning. I'd invite you all to stand up and greet one another, but you're already doing it. Awesome job. Good job. Well, as others are coming in, we want to welcome you this morning. And those of you that are watching online, we want to we want to praise God and, and thank him for all that he's doing. So if you would join with me in prayer as we now just focus our hearts and our minds on what God wants to teach us and through his word and through worship. God, as we pause from our week, as we reflect and respect the Sabbath day that, that you've set apart to be different than any other day, Lord, we want to meet with you. We want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be the teacher, the instructor, the encourager, and the comforter. That in all of these things that we do this morning, the name of God would be praised. That you would be honored and worshipped. Lord, we thank you for our time. Speak to us. And may the word of God speak. Amen. Well, if you would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. As we continue our study in Luke's account of the beginning of the early church, Acts of the disciples, and as he writes to Theophilus, question, do you know the will of God for your life? It is a difficult topic and as we look at it, and if you do know the will of God for your life, are you following it? Do you realize that God's got a plan for you? Yeah, and he's got a plan for you to prosper. In, in some aspects, the will of God for your life is actually spelled out in Scripture. We know that it is the will of God that in everything that we're to give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 It's the will of God for you to avoid sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 It's the will of God that you do good. 1 Peter 2.15. Now you, you look at that and you say, okay, great. God, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Well, we don't always do it that way. But we want to know what the will of God is for our life. There are two classes of the will of God. There's the class of prescriptive will. In other words, God says, you will do this because I'm sovereign and this is the way things are going to go. So God is prescriptive, and he says, this is the way things that will go. And then on the other side, there is God's permissive will, where he says, this is what I want you to do, but you have some free will and you have some choices within that. And we often struggle with that because we want to know the will of God and practices like, God, is it your will that I marry this person? Is it your will that I take this job? Is it your will that I go on this trip? Is it your will that I go on vacation? And in a lot of those categories, it, that all falls under God's permissive will within them. But there are also aspects of prescriptive will where God has foreordained before the foundations of the world some of these elements in your lives, this path that God would set for you within this. And so we live in this tension of prescriptive will and permissive will and how they all work together. And we struggle because we want to do the right thing and we want to avoid 
being in the wrong place as Christ followers. We want to do what God wants us to do. So how does this all work? Well, here's the, here's the simple answer. Every day, live your life for God. You won't fail. Every day, just say, God, your will be done. And you won't fail. You say, well, what if I get it wrong? If you start out with a preface of, God, I want to follow your will today, and you prayerfully consider that, God's going to lead you by the Holy Spirit. Where I get into a lot of problem is where I make a plan, according to my will, and then I ask God to bless the mess. You all are laughing because you all do it too. And, and so we start out kind of backwards in the whole process of that. Following the will of God, though, for your life, is one of the things that we've got to understand, it's a personal journey. It is your journey for your life. There's a lot of spectators in your life, aren't there? And they want to tell you what God's will is for your life. Don't they? Bless their hearts. It's your journey. And you've got to hear from God in your, your way and be led by the Holy Spirit personally within this. And here's another rub. Accepting the will of God for your life can become complicated. Especially when the will of God leads, through, leads you through a time of sorrow and suffering. When God's prescriptive will says you will suffer, you will experience sorrow, and you're like, really? I don't want to do that. I don't want to experience this. It is, it is a, a, a difficult direction to follow um, because as we're in this journey, oftentimes our well-meaning friends and family members will chime in on our behalf and say, don't go there because it's hurting you. Don't go there because it's going to create sorrow. Don't go there because it's going to create sorrow for us. And your decision has an impact on us. And so we get into this wrestling match internally when we're following the will of God for our life. And that's where we're at with Paul. Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem. This is the end of his third missionary trip. He has gone through the churches, and he's gone through Macedonia. He's gone through Asia. He's visited all the churches. He's done everything that needed to be done in evangelizing the, the churches in those areas. And the churches being established. The, Jews, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are suffering, and so he's taken up an offering, and he's on his way back. But at all of the ports that he's been visiting, all the believers that are there have been telling him, don't go, because the Holy Spirit is telling us, when you get there, you're going to be arrested. It's going to be bad for you. You're going to suffer within this. And so there is this tension in Paul's journey as he's walking through this visit. And, and you imagine the suffering. In fact, in Acts 20, 22, we covered it already, but it says, And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I'm bound by the Spirit. And you think about those words. Bound by the Spirit. Paul's personal journey. 
This is the Holy Spirit speaking to Paul individually. And while he's getting an encouragement not to go, he is bound by the Spirit to go, not knowing what's going to happen when he gets there. Paul did not make a lot of friends in the, with the Pharisees who were against him and, and such things. And so within this, this journey is difficult, but it's also, it's also reminiscent of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. When he was getting ready to go to the cross, he knew that it was his final journey, that he would be ending up going to Jerusalem for the last time because he would suffer and die. He knew that. But it was his Father's will that he would go through this. In fact, we read in Matthew chapter 16, 21 to 23, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and be raised up from the third day. Now we know the account. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, which is kind of an interesting oxymoron. Yes, Lord. No, Lord. Well, if he's Lord, you can't tell him what to do. This shall never happen to you. But he, being Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man. So even Jesus had friends telling him, don't go, don't fulfill the will of God, because you fulfilling the will of God is going to hurt you, but it's really going to hurt me. And so there's this tension that exists as we fulfill the will of God, and it's hard to, to be at peace in those situations. When you really feel that God is leading you in a direction and everybody is telling you don't go. And their sorrow also becomes a stumbling block for you. It's difficult. So we're given two examples in scriptures that we're going to unpack this morning. One with Paul and one with Jesus. Both come to the same conclusion. Thy will be done. And ultimately at the end of the day, isn't that the best conclusion? Thy will be done. Could you say that in every circumstance? I don't like it, but your will be done. Well, let's figure out how Paul got there and let's follow his journey. If you would stand as we read through Acts chapter 21, 1 through 16. As we track Paul's itinerary all the way to Jerusalem, it says this. And when we had parted from them, and this is the Miletus group. And had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we kept sailing to Syria and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, kept sailing, or kept telling Paul, through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey. And while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city, and after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and returned home again. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, 
the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. And now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet in his hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, he said, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not, I am ready, I'm sorry, for I am ready not only to be bound, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent and remarking, the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us, Nathan of Cyprus, a disciple of longstanding with whom we were to lodge. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So as we take a look at this, you're going to, you, you might look at this and you say, well, Carrie, this sounds like a travel itinerary, and it is. It's Paul's itinerary, but it's important to understand all of the elements that are on this journey. This journey would take some time. This is a personal journey that Luke accounts for in Paul's life as, as he is moving towards Jerusalem. Paul would travel from Miletus all the way to Tyre. So we have a map just to orient yourself to that. So in this... Paul started in Antioch and he made this whole big tour going throughout Asia, visiting the churches and gathering funds all the way to Corinth and then making his way back to Miletus. And that's where we last left Paul later. If, on a side note, if you notice, Patmos is right here where John the Apostle would write the book of Revelation um, and from the city of Ephesus. He skipped Ephesus, went to Miletus. From Miletus, he's going to travel to Kos, Patera, and all and Rhodes, he's going to go Kos, Rhodes, Patera, and then all the way to Phoenicia, which is this little green strip on the edge of Syria. And he'll go to Tyre. From Tyre, he'll go to Ptolemus, which is known as Echo. From there to Caesarea Maritima. All of this by boat. And then he will go across land from Caesarea Maritima to Jerusalem. We'll leave the map up as we kind of take a look at this. But as, as we think through his travel, it says, and we parted. And literally, it says, when we parted from them, it means we tore ourselves from them. That's the original translation. They had grabbed a hold of them, and it was as if they were, Paul was and Luke, and the party was tearing themselves away from the elders of Ephesus. As if they were grabbing a hold on them. Have you ever loved somebody that much where, where it was tearing them away? It was this thing was, it was this tearing of a relationship. Why? Because Paul had given them the, the truth. I'm probably never going to see you again. There are different seasons and chapters in our lives. People will come into our life and people will go and people will have great meaning in our life in that process. And saying goodbye is difficult. And it was difficult for, for both parties to leave. But Paul had to go. Why? Because he was compelled by the Spirit. 
He was compelled by the Spirit to go. It was his journey, and the people in Miletus, the elders that were there, didn't understand that compulsion, that they have to go within this. And so it becomes very difficult. They would go to the first stop, Kos. It was an island about 40 miles south of Miletus, and each one of these stops is about a day's journey. Kos was first established by the Dorian Greeks, and it was a home of a medical school. Think about this if you recognize this name. Hippocrates. Have you ever heard of the Hippocratic Oath? Do no harm. It's an oath that doctors would take. It was founded here by Hippocrates in 5th century B.C. 5th century B.C., this, this Greek doctor and philosopher had gotten together and he started this school. And so they started this school of medicine within that. And if you were to be a doctor and you went to this medical school, you would swear an oath by the gods of Greece. You would swear an oath by the god of Apollo and other gods that were there. And there's this whole list that you would swear by. But, it, but our medical doctors today have, have condensed it and basically say, we swear in our Hippocratic oath to do no harm within that. That was all based out of here. Paul would stop there they, for the night. They would port. And Paul's journey, at least on this first part, was on a small cargo ship. It stayed close to the coast. And, and did these little stopovers, these ports. It would, it would offload cargo and then passengers and bring more on. Then he would go to the second stop, Rhodes. The city of Rhodes is on the island of Rhodes. It's on the northeast tip. It was a major trade port in the Roman Empire, and it held the status of a Roman free city. Now, if you remember what a Roman free city was, it meant that they were able to self-govern, that, that they didn't have to have any type of Roman influence within that. They could be who they wanted to be. They had achieved this status within there. And so he would stop there. Then their third stop was Patera. So that would be the third day. And they would come to Patera, which was on the, the Lycian mainland. So they're, they're traveling across in this mainland. Paul would then change from a smaller vessel to a larger vessel that could handle the hope and water that he would go across the, the sea over to Tyre in Phoenicia within that. It was about a 400-mile trip by boat. Can you imagine? There's no motor, right? And, and so you're on this boat, this, this wooden cargo ship, and you were completely dependent upon the wind to get you there. Take about five days to get there within that journey all the way to Tyre, which is on the mainland, and it was the main port in Asia. It was in the, the strip of Phoenicia, that green strip, and they would come there, and that's how the cargo from Asia and Macedonia would get over to Phoenicia, Syria, Israel. Um, we, we can study a lot about Tyre and Sidon in Scripture, but understanding that Tyre was also a free city, Roman government really didn't mess with them too much. They were able to be there. It was well known for its purple dye and its garments within this. Now, that was Paul's travel itinerary pretty quick. It was going through. But then when he gets there in verse 4, it says he looked up to the disciples, which literally means he searched for. He searched for other Christians. Why? Because he was going to be entire for a period of time as they were going to 
retool the ship and they were going to offload the cargo within that. One of the things that's important to understand is Paul, wherever he went, if he was going to have time, he wanted to invest in people. He wanted to teach. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted to give them the word of God. Why? Because in Paul's mind, according to the will of God, he would never see them again. And it was important for him to make disciples. Hmm. Have we heard that before? Go into all the world and what? Make disciples. Paul was fulfilling the general calling for every believer. Understanding that it was the will of God for every Christ follower to make disciples. You say, well, God, what is your will for my life? You know what? Make disciples. Teach people. Share with them. Evangelize. Study God's word. So he reaches out to these disciples that lived in the city to fellowship and teach with them. They would have known of Paul, and some would have probably known Paul because of the close proximity to Antioch that was in there. And there was a lot of people that would have been connected with his teaching. And imagine the Apostle Paul coming to town. It would have been like back in the day if Billy Graham would have come to Warren. You would have been, oh my goodness, you know, I want to come hear from him. Because of, of, you know, the teaching and, and who he was and such. So Paul would have that, that status within. Also, the other thing is, you've got to understand, Paul was driven to seek out these disciples. Why? What kind of person was Paul prior to being saved? He was a persecutor of the church. Many of the believers that were in this northern area, especially in Tyre and this area, were there because many of the believers that were in Jerusalem were scattered after the stoning of Stephen. After the stoning of Stephen and and life got hard in Jerusalem, they all scattered and went up to the north. And Antioch was established and all of these things. In fact, Acts chapter 11 verse 19 says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecutions that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. What was Paul doing up here? I think Paul had this, this passion to present himself to the people that he once persecuted. To be able to give the Word of God, to show the transformation in his life, to bring that teaching to all of those that he once harmed. To show that the power of God is powerful to change a life. So he he would go back in this place and he would say, yeah, I'm sorry. Let me share with you the love of Christ. I think Paul was personally invested in the believers in this region, both in Antioch and Phoenicia and Syria, because these are the people that suffered under the hand of Paul. And so he wanted to minister to them. And once again, by the power of the Spirit and the wisdom of the Spirit, these believers that are in this area that were once persecuted by Paul are saying, don't go to Jerusalem because they're going to persecute you. Can God restore broken relationships? Absolutely. And these believers that are there are 
begging him, please don't go. Now, here we have a dilemma. The believers that are in Tyre that he sought out, they're struggling because they have been given affirmation by the Holy Spirit that if Paul goes, he's going to suffer. Right? Yet Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, says, you must go and you're going to suffer. Who's right? Who's right? Is Paul right? Holy Spirit told him, go. Are the believers right? Holy Spirit saying he's going to suffer and don't go. What are the believers adding? Personal preference. The Holy Spirit was giving insight to both parties, both groups, about the plan and the future. Paul was setting aside his emotions, whereas the church, the believers that were there, were mixed with their emotions within this. You know, and and he asked the question, was Paul being disobedient to the Holy Spirit by not listening to the believers? No. He was being obedient. Did Paul have some kind of, you know, selfish motivation? I want to go. I want to go and I want to be a martyr. Was that Paul's motivation? No. He didn't have some kind of martyr syndrome complex that he wanted to be seen that way. So, the question I thought of is this. Can God give a spiritual insight to a future event without, telling, without utilizing that insight in order to cause us to avoid the event? Can God say this is going to happen so that we're aware of it, but not mean it as a warning to avoid it? Absolutely. God can prepare you for the future by giving you wisdom. This will be happening. But not all wisdom means that you have to act upon it to avoid it. You may need to go through it. And often I believe that that is a way that God would encourage us. Paul didn't want to suffer and die. But he knew that this was God's plan for him to go through this. And it included suffering and being persecuted and potentially dying. Paul was determined to fulfill the will of God as much as Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says this, And when the days were approaching for his ascension, he, being Jesus, was determined to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew that going to Jerusalem meant the cross. It meant the cross so, that it, so he would die, but it also meant his resurrection. It was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. And he had to go to Jerusalem. And he had to die on the cross so he would rise again. The same with Paul. Paul knew he had to go. There may be times in your life where God says, this is the path that I've set for you. This is the journey that I've set for you. And then you have a conversation with God. I don't want to go. No, I want you to go. I didn't give you this information so that you would try to find the chicken exit. 
it's time to go. You know, I'm reminded years and years ago, back when, when Disneyland was a really happiest place on the earth. And I remember going on Space Mountain when it first opened up. Yes, I'm old. Going through that ride and going through that line and you're walking through the inside of this mountain and on the side there's a, there's a doorway and there's a big sign and it's got probably a whole paragraph. If you are pregnant, if you are motion sickness, if you are scared, if you are a big chicken, use this exit. Why? So that allowed you to get out of the line, right, and get off the ride. Well, you don't do that. Why? Because you don't want to be that guy that goes through the ticket exit. If you got in line, you better know what's going on. I went on the ride once. Not because I was chicken, but oh my goodness, that thing made me motion sickness. I'm like, okay, I'm done with that. I like outside roller coasters. Inside where I can't see where I'm going, I'm done. So now I know what's ahead, so I just avoid it. God doesn't always give us what's ahead of us, but if He does, if He tells you, this is the plan that I have for you, most likely He's not giving you that information to avoid it. He's giving you the information to prepare you and to prepare your witness for other people as they watch you through your journey. As they watch you go through this. Paul was still making disciples. But how was Paul making disciples? By engaging in the plan that God had for him by saying, Thy will be done. By accepting the plan that God had for him. Many disciples, women and children, note this. This is the first time in the New Testament that children are mentioned as part of the congregation. They all come and they meet with Paul on the beach and they weep for him as he leaves Tyre to go to Jerusalem. And he would continue on to Caesarea Maritima, as we'll see. And everyone viewed this as a farewell. I'll never see you again within this. Being content with the will of God provides peace. That's your witness. For you, and as an example for other people, how you handle your journey is a witness. How you accept the will of God, even if it means sorrow, suffering, or even death, is a witness to others. So that in their journey, when they come to the place of having to cross a path, enter a path that's going to bring that sorrow and suffering, they can reflect on how you walked your path and say, yes, they did it. I can do it because the God who strengthens me. It's accepting the will of God. But accepting the will of God requires determination. You have to come to that place where you can be content with thy will being done and be determined. So Paul continues. He leaves Tyre and he goes to Ptolemy. And so we have it up here on the map again. I want to show you just to, to again, reorient yourself. So Paul is over here. And he's leaving Tyre, and he's going to go to Echo, which we find in the book of Judges. I believe it's 13. So he's going to go from Tyre. He's just going to take this little short jaunt, still in Phoenicia, and go over here to Ptolemy. 
And then from there, he's going to go to Caesarea Maritima. This is a place that I'll mention in a minute. But it's just these little short jaunts that he's going to go via boat. So he's going to go to Ptolemy, um, 25 miles south of Tyre. And, and again, it was in Echo, I'm sorry, in Judges 131. Ptolemy was named after Alexander the Great's, uh, one of his great generals, uh, Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, in 285, 246 for you historians. Just a seaport. But he wants to get to Caesarea, and there are two Caesareas in Israel. There's Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea Philippi. Don't get the two confused. Caesarea Maritima, you'll always know because you think of the word maritime. Maritime means water, right on the coast. Caesarea Philippi was a Caesarea that was, that was a city established by Philip, and it's inland north of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus would spend a lot of time. We actually, on our trip in March, will go to both places that are there. Caesarea is named after Caesar. These are Roman-named cities to honor Caesar himself within this. So Paul sails from Ptolemy to, to Caesarea Maritima, and there he meets up with a guy by the name of Philip. Do you know who Philip is? Do you remember Philip? Acts chapter 6. He was one of the deacons that was part of the group that was helping out the, the Hellenistic widows that were there when that whole thing. And then he ends up becoming an evangelist, and he's the guy that goes and, and baptizes the eunuch there along the road, and he does this whole uh, evangelistic course. He ends up in Caesarea Maritima, and he's there for 20 years. Has four daughters, and the four daughters become prophetesses. They're serving under the Lord. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 40, it says, But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching to the gospel to the cities until he came to Caesarea. Does God have a plan? Absolutely. For everyone, yes. Philip's journey was to start out as a servant, a deacon. He started out as a deacon. And his whole role was to help with the Hellenistic widows and the needs that they had so that the apostles continue with the word of God in prayer. And from there, he was led out to be an evangelist and to go out and to pray and lead others to the Lord. And you don't hear from him any time until now. What's he doing for 20 years in Caesarea Maritima? The work of God. How did he get there? God led him there. Why? Because from his time of getting there to 20 years later, he needed to be in place for when Paul arrived. Does God have a plan? Yes. And he goes and he fulfills this plan that is there. Philip's daughters are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is something that's also powerful. Some people would say that, you know, women should not hold roles of leadership within the church. That is wrong. That is wrong. They, they can hold a role of leadership from the spiritual gifting of being able to teach other women, to teach the children. We don't find it in the role of, of presbyteros, which would, which would fulfill the role of elder, but we do find them in the roles of deacons. Can they teach? Yes, they can. As, under the utterance of the Holy Spirit. These prophetesses were going around and they were professing the word of God within this. In Acts chapter 2, we see 
uh, verse 17, it says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit of all mankind, and your sons, note, and your what? Daughters shall do what? Prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I'm still seeing visions. I don't know about you all. But we look at this and we see that that according to even the prophecy of Joel, Peter would quote that later in Joel 2, 28 to 32, that women would have the ability, the unction to be able to prophesy on behalf of the Lord within that. It's a spiritual gift and it's a position that, that we find. Anna, at the birth of Jesus, prophesies. Women hold a high regard and place within the body of Christ. There is a structure, we would call it hupotasso, it's an order that God had set. And it would be God, Christ, the, the, the husband, the wife, the children, and within those orders, and then the pastor teachers. And so we don't find women holding that position of pastoral care within the office according to 1 Timothy 3. But is there a position for them to prophesy? Absolutely yes. And I've had many women, even in this congregation, where God has spoken to their heart and they've passed that on to me. Or within other confines, home groups and those things, where God would inspire them to be able to speak the Word of God in truth within that. And absolutely yes. There is that place within that. Philip's daughters are prophesying throughout Caesarea within this. And while they're prophesying and doing that work and all of these things, Paul shows up and he stays with Philip while he's there. And another prophet, Agabus, comes up from Judea, up from the south. Agabus comes up, and we first saw Agabus, Agabus in Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 27 to 30, when Agabus came up and prophesied that there would be a famine in the time of Claudius within Judea. Now, imagine this. Paul is there. He just got off this long trip. He's there in Philip's house, Caesarea Maritime, which is this huge, huge city. They have an amphitheater. They have a hippodrome. They've got the Bema seat. They've got this huge port that was, that was made. It's a fantastic city, and we'll spend some time there. But imagine you're sitting in the house and you're, you're just there. And this guy, Agabus, comes up and comes into the house and he walks over to you and he says, give me your belt. Not a leather belt like what we have, but it would be a long cloth that would go around your tunic. And so it's this long cloth and he walks up and he says, give me your belt. Paul takes off this long cloth and he wraps up his hands and he wraps up his feet. And he says, the owner of this belt is going to be arrested when he gets to Jerusalem. Paul's like, I, I, yeah, I know, but can you imagine? That's a, that's a pretty big reality check. And you say, well, why did he do it that way? Agabus was following the pattern of the Old Testament prophets. Where the Old Testament prophets would actually act out the prophecy and then give the interpretation. I praise God that He does not call us to do that today. Because you know why? Isaiah had to prophesy naked and barefoot throughout the city. Anybody want to sign up to be a prophet? We're having a meeting later. 
But it was how they prophesied with endless. And that imagery for everyone that was in the house was grievous. In fact, it was even grievous to Luke because Luke says in the text, and we, the inclusive we, we were sorrowful. We saw this. We saw this and we began to tell him, don't go up. Even Luke said, don't go. Don't go. Why? It's one thing for the believers in the other cities in Asia to say, hey, you know what? We have this impression of the Lord, but now they're on the mainland. And now you've got this old time prophet that's saying, this is what's going to happen to you. And we're only 64 miles away. Now life is getting real. And they didn't want him to go. But the same thing happened to Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus prophesied his own fate. And he says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and condemn him to death and he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. And so within this, Paul's fate is very similar. Matthew 20, verse 18. Again, we're going up. Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest scribes and they'll condemn him to death. Agabus was predicting Paul's future as fact. As fact. There was no argument about it. This is what will happen. God's prescriptive will will take place within this. And Luke didn't like it along with them. But notice verse 14. When Paul would not be changed. Notice also verse 13. Go back to 13 for a minute. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Your sorrow is breaking me. That phrase, breaking my heart, is a term that's used to describe washing clothes. And what they used to do is they'd take the clothes down to the river and they would use stones and beat the cloth with the stones and rub out the dirt. Right? It was a way to scrub it. It's the same phrase. He says, your sorrow is breaking me. I know what's going to happen. And so empathetically, they're, they're in this mutual state of sorrow within this. But verse 14, because Paul would not change his mind, the people fell silent and said, the will of the Lord be done. They wrestled with sorrow. They wrestled with the future. They wrestled with God's plan. Together. And finally said. The will of the Lord be done. But how did they get there? Paul's determination. When God sets a plan in your life. Be settled. Be settled with that plan. Because how you handle it. Will bring peace to other people. Where they can say. The will of the Lord be done. Even though we don't like it. We accept it. Within this. And so it comes to that contentment. The last verses that we have, 15 and 16. God will fulfill His plan. After these days we got ready and started on our way, went to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea came with us. 
took us to Nason's house of Cyprus, the disciples longstanding in whom we were to lodge. And so Luke gives us this last part of the narrative. He says, okay, they packed up all the animals. Literally, they put everything on that they got from Macedonia and Asia. They put it on all the animals and they started this 64-mile journey that would take them all the way down to Jerusalem. Some commentators would argue they would say that Nason's house was halfway through, but most likely it was in Jerusalem. It was a two-day journey to go from Caesarea Maritima down to Jerusalem. We can make it in about two and a half hours. Praise God for motors. But within this, we look at this. And what did they do? They went and they stayed with Nason's house. And Paul entered the city. Paul entered the city as a free man. He would leave in chains. Why? Because the will of God be done. Understanding the leading of the Holy Spirit is difficult. For sure. God, what are you doing in my life? Is this your prescriptive will or permissive will? How do I know? Pray. And then when that's done, pray some more. And when that's done, pray some more. Come at it from an understanding of, God, this is your will for my life. You may listen to counsel of other people, but filter out their sorrow or their advice because it's your journey that God is leading you through. And how you handle that journey is going to give insight and encouragement to those that are watching your journey. And the will of God will be done. Accepting that will is imperative. And being content with that will will bring encouragement to you and to others. Why? Because God's good. And God loves you. And God's got a plan for you to prosper and the journey may be rough, but in the end, the name of God will be praised. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this time in the study of your word. Lord, we know that you have a plan for us, that you are sovereign over all things. I would pray, God, that you would strengthen our hearts and our resolve to follow you all the days. May we surrender our hearts completely to you. We praise you. We thank you. We honor you. And as we close out our time, may we live a life that is completely surrendered to you. God, I thank you that we have become living epistles, that you are writing your word in our hearts and through our lives as a message to others, that the glory of the Son, Jesus, has saved such a wretch like me. And that in that, whether it's in life or in death, May your will be done as I seek to serve you. And, and in that confidence, may living that out, thy will be done. Bring confidence to others that they don't have to fear what this world has or even the grave. Because God, you will receive all glory and be glorified. We thank you. Lead us, Holy Spirit, we pray in our lives and in this day. And may everything we say and do put a smile on your face. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m.
Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.